0: Hello, everyone. You are listening to No Such Word As Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't. And I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down to talk with someone who has a wealth of knowledge and experience, and I cannot wait to share it all with all of you. Mm -hmm. Please welcome Christy Versus to the podcast. Welcome, Christy. Oh, Hazel, thank you so
1: much. I'm very (laughs) excited to talk to you. And I absolutely love the name of your podcast. No such word as can't. (laughs) Uh, It really, it really uh, strikes a passion in me because I, I truly believe that uh, don't don't let anybody tell you you can't do something. You can do it. Sometimes it may not be exactly what you intended, but mm-hmm. uh, in the in the end, it all works out, and you realize you're in the right place.
0: Absolutely. And I have to. Um, I can't take credit for it at all. It is what my mum used to say to me since oh. I was a child about anything about swimming, school, you know, musical instruments, or even my career. It was just nope. There's no such word as can't. I will not accept uh, it. Um, so I have to give her a little shout out for that because I cannot take the credit. But um, you're clearly someone who lived by that mantra as well because you have done oh, there's the chihuahuas.
1: Christy <laughs> uh, did warn me. <laughs> I told you that might happen, and of course. Um, You know, right when we start talking, that's when uh, somebody came to our door. So naturally,
0: naturally, it's of course, it's going to happen then. But (laughs) um, Christy, honestly, I don't even know where to start about what I want to ask you. You have you have so much experience. You know, I'm like, how do I even fit all of this into an hour? (laughs) But um, how about we start at the beginning? Sure. Well, what inspired
1: you? What inspired me? Oh, I have to tell you that since the time that I can remember, I always wanted to work with animals. In fact, one of my favorite stories to tell, and actually, I, I don't share the story too often with people, but I do love to share it, is when I was a little girl, I so wanted to rehabilitate and care for animals and I, uh, I found a little dog in our neighborhood and I brought the dog home and I, Mm. I washed the dog, I petted him, I gave him some milk and some food and really took care of him. And it was really interesting because at one point in my mind, I rescued this animal. And at one Mm. point, my, my dad said, honey, take the dog back to the neighbor. (laughs) So It wasn't an an animal that was out, but in my mind, I thought I had to rescue this dog, so I took him over to the neighbor, and they said, "Thank you for taking care of our dog." So it just, you know, I think there's some people that just they're born with this natural desire to be in and among animals and to care for them. Mm. So I, I I knew from the time I was little that I really wanted to be a veterinarian, and as I grew older. And I understood exactly what a veterinarian did. One of the things that really struck me is a veterinarian technician. you know it's just like a doctor and a nurse and and how involved is a veterinarian as opposed to a veterinarian technician? I also uh, grew up in a military family, and so going off to a four year college really wasn't something that that I could do right away. um so I did start off at a junior college and i was very lucky that very close to my my uh my parents home was the animal health technology program so that's the route that i took Uh, it's a two-year program and it was phenomenal not only did i learn the medical aspect to caring for animals but i got a great opportunity to work with a wide variety of species anything from rats to mice to snakes to raptors to pigs a horse um, we had a lemur, we took care of domestic dog and cat from local shelters, they would come in for spays and neuters and then we'd have opportunities to do, to do other treatments. So I did that for two years and in my last um, month of school, I had done a couple of internships and although I really enjoyed the veterinary technician side, I grew up with a fascination of marine mammals, and mm. i I had the opportunity to go to SeaWorld a couple times as a, as a little kid, but mm-hmm. there was so much that we didn't know about marine mammals, and I was fascinated, and of course, we lived about, you know ten ten miles from SeaWorld. And so uh, right in my my last year of high school, I went and got an entry-level job at SeaWorld. Amazing, and so I started working there. I was working there while I was going through the animal health technology program. so that was the route that I was taking, and then I learned about animal care and the rescue and rehabilitation program at seaWorld. and I just that was the perfect blend of my fascination of marine mammals, my experience as an animal health tech. I could really marry those two and and work at seaWorld. Um so that was sort of the beginning of how I started to gain experience. And then, of course, I worked for six years at SeaWorld in a non-animal position, which was really critical to understanding how the organization worked. You know, there are friends that I, that I met back in 1988 that are still very close friends to me today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so many great opportunities. And, you know, that's Sometimes you have to get into an organization and maybe do a job that it's not exactly what you want to do. Yeah. Uh, but it definitely helps you to to learn other aspects that are critical to uh, your success as, as you get older.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think there's so much benefit in letting people know, you know, it's okay to start at the bottom and work your way up.
1: That's right. Absolutely.
0: So tell us a little bit about what it was like when you finally started working with the marine mammals?
1: So as I said, I started off in our animal care department. So I really fell in love with the rescue and rehabilitation program. But I also got the opportunity to work with species in the park. So commerce dolphins, bottlenose dolphins, sea lions, walruses, uh, California sea otters, Alaska sea otters. So it was really a, a great, let's see, I think I was in animal care for seven years. So wow. I really learned, you know, the care and, you know, the medical side of, of helping uh, these animals and then also being involved in research, you know, being able to connect the guests to the animals. Uh, but like I said, my, my heart was really in the the rescue and rehab mm-hmm. program. So I, I did that for seven years. And, you know, one of the things that we did as, you know, you and I uh, have this very much in common is taking part in training animals and so mm-hmm. traditionally the animals in animal care did not have a formal training program but of course you know there were simple things like how do we ask the dolphins to move from one pool to another pool so our yeah. team could go in and clean um, so I just absolutely was was blown away by operant conditioning mm. and just how much you could accomplish Working with an animal, you know, it's hard enough to work with people. We have language where we can explain things Mm -hmm. and, you know, gain better understanding. But it was really interesting to me, you know, how you built up a trust with the animals and how you could communicate non verbally and really do some amazing things. And what really struck me was the changes in some animals. You know, some of, I will tell you, anybody that's worked with me, you know, I love working with the animals that are that have been, you know, labeled as, oh, that's a difficult animal or that's mm, a separate animal mm-hmm. or such a challenge. Animal, oh, yeah. That animal doesn't know or that animal is not as smart as other animals. And I, I, you know, I jokingly say, well, your animals are a reflection of your training abilities. So, Ooh, <laughs> you, know? <I> love that. <laughs> you know, not know, that's not too you know be mean or critical. It's more so trying to understand why is this animal having difficulty? Yeah. And more times than not, it's not that they cognitively can't do it. It's because usually it's social structure or it's mm. their learning history. And you really have to get past that um, and, and work with the animals. So those are always my favorite animals because, you know, somebody tells, would tell me, oh, that animal cannot learn uh, to participate and give blood. Oh, really? Okay. I want to be on that animal. Um so I just really you know operant conditioning really opened my eyes to like the next step in my career. So I ended up transferring into our animal training department in two thousand and one and worked at our dolphin area, so it was bottlenose dolphins and pilot whales. We transitioned the show into um a mixed species, so we also had a, a number of different birds. And so I spent 11 years working there. And then probably I'd say the last like five years that I was at Dolphin, I really wanted to to work with the killer whales. I had heard so much about their learning ability. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I was always in awe of the killer whales. In fact, my first month that I was working in park operations at SeaWorld, my boss said, hey, one of the killer whales is in labor. Do you want to go watch? And I said, oh, amazing. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, I want to go watch it. Mm-hmm. I've never seen anything like that. And so I was there the day that Orchid was born. Um, so then, you know, move forward some, you know, 25, 28 years later, and now I'm, I'm actually working with her. Uh, That's it incredible. was
0: incredible. Yeah, it was just really, really special. So you've spoken a little bit about, you know, I understand training can be addictive, you know, when when you start getting (laughs) results or even when you don't get results, you just become so determined. Like, oh, how do I get my animals to understand what I'm trying Mm -hmm. to teach them? What would you say is one of the biggest training challenges you've had in your career? You know, I I think it's the people. I think that's the biggest challenge. Love that.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. So. You know, we obviously have different personalities, and people think differently. And I think that's the first—that's the first uh, aspect of training that I really love. Is there's no right or wrong answer, right? Like mm-hmm. we can sit and talk for days about a behavior, and my perception of how the behavior is going or how it should be trained is is not right, and you're wrong. It's more so trying to understand one another. So yeah, um, I, I've had people listen to. We would do notes after a show and talk about. The details of behavior and behaviors we bridged and didn't bridge and you know what we want to do next and maybe new behavior we want to train and i've had people listen in and say wow you guys are so harsh but for the team it's not <laughs> harsh it's just a reality of we are trying everything we can to make sure that what we're doing and what we're communicating is as clear as possible Absolutely, so really yeah. trying to get people to understand number one you know, one bad bridge isn't going to break a behavior. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, also making sure that people maintain their patience.
0: You mm-hmm. know, uh,
1: I, I think that that's probably the best quality that you can have is, you know, an animal is not doing something to purposely irritate you or frustrate mm-hmm. you. They're doing it because it's, it's a result of how you're communicating or what's been bridged in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd say that's probably the biggest challenge is, is the people and, and really ensuring that you have clear communication. Um, and as, as you know, when you have a number of animals that you're working with and a number of people and then the behaviors, you know, you're talking about thousands of different types of conversations that you can have just about one, one animal. So,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: I'd say that's, that's the. That's the most difficult. I I don't (laughs) think there's any behavior that, you know, oh, that was so difficult and we couldn't do it. It Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's certainly been challenges. I, I remember helping to finish training a front flip on a bottlenose dolphin named Perina, and she had just been bridged so many times for not tucking her head. So that was super, super challenging to really rework and reestablish I would say for, for people who are wanting to get into industry and training, always remember this, what you train first is always the strongest. So make sure you take time in your approximations, make sure you're clearly communicating because what you're bridging in the beginning will always be, be the
0: strongest. And mm. so mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And I just, I, this is again a marker of the amount of experience that you have the fact like I would never have thought about you know training the people is hard but you're you're so right and I love that you you said um that one bad bridge isn't going to break a behavior and you know I think you you see so many young trainers myself as well when i when I started you know you're so nervous to make a mistake you have <laughs> like like you want to prove yourself and you want to be like I'm a good trainer and one of the things that we had um at Marineland was make a mistake but make it confidently so right. it doesn't matter if you make a mistake as long as you know why it happened so right. like if something goes wrong if I then say to you or my supervisor or anyone asked okay why did you choose to do that and why was it not the right choice as long as that trainer could then go oh I chose because of this reason and I get that that was wrong because of this then it was okay as long as That's you know right everyone is safe and all the animals are good, like make a mistake. It's okay. That's right. It's all a part of the learning process. You know, failure is a great way to learn. Mm. And so when
1: you, when you accept that as a trainer and you say, you know, failure is fine. My animal can fail. I can Mm -hmm. fail. It's what you do afterwards. That's super important. And that's why, that's why the LRS is such a critical foundation of training uh, for those of you that don't know what an LRS stands for, it's the least reinforcing scenario. This is an opportunity for your animal to gain reinforcement through acceptance of that failure. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, you know, it's funny, even today, as many years as the LRS has been around, there's still confusion. You know, when I hear a trainer say, or I say, oh, why did you bridge that? Well, I didn't want, I didn't want an LRS. And I think (laughs) you should want, you should want to LRS. The LRS is just an opportunity for your animal to display calm behavior after Mm -hmm. failure. And that's critical. Can you imagine, Hazel, if you went through your whole life and every time you failed, you had another opportunity for reinforcement. (laughs) It doesn't happen with people, but it would be so encouraging. Oh, absolutely. It would be so uh, really embracing failure and understanding that that's a stepping stone to learning Mm -hmm. the next step is like okay so my animal failed or maybe my bridge wasn't the best okay where do we go from here what's the step next step do we need to take a couple steps back do I need to be more clear do I need to be more intentional about my target work Uh, so there's you know to me that's so exciting when an animal fails because it's an opportunity for you to learn along with your animal And once you figure that out, there's no there's no greater feeling, (laughs) you know, once you get to a point. Yeah. And it's when you train something and and everything goes perfectly. Most of the time, you don't have that foundation of training the behavior to go backwards. So, as you know, when you're in, in this industry long enough, behaviors break down all the time. Oh, yeah. And so when you have that step by step process to go through. Um, it's much easier to reshape or get that behavior back if you if you've had that foundation
0: with the animal. Also, if everything goes perfectly, it's boring. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think so. But <laughs> you're just like we we used to run out of things to train with the whales. Would be like, oh, okay, she's learned this now. Great. That took a total mm-hmm. of three weeks. Okay, what are uh-huh. we gonna <laughs> do now? <laughs> or, or sometimes one session with with some yes. whales, right? Yes. Yes. Like, oh, oh, they're. Crazy intelligent. But for yeah. you, what was that like going from and I, I literally ask everyone this because I think it's it's so interesting. How did you feel going from working with, you know, I mean you've worked with so many species, but working with, you know, dolphins um for so long and then taking that step up to killer whales, what was that like for you taking that step? I, I don't want to say a step up because I don't view killer whales as any better than any other animal, but it definitely is a different ball game.
1: Yes. And I'm so glad you said that because I think sometimes in our industry, people view working with the killer whales as a promotion. And I will tell you, yes, you know, management is looking for the trainers who are observant that are very safe, but the skills that you use with the killer whales are just as important working with sea lions, with walruses, with otters, Mm -hmm. with birds, with reptiles. You know, it's, it's an understanding about the natural history of an animal and the safety elements that you need to consider with working with, with different species. So as I told you, I, ha- I had wanted to go and work with the killer whales for years. So uh, number one, obviously, the size. You know, these are much <laughs> larger animals. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest surprise to me, and I had worked at SeaWorld for so long, but for some reason, I had never realized. You hear about their intelligence. But mm-hmm. I, I had never really heard about or really experienced the the uh, the social element of the whales, and yes. so that was truly fascinating. And mm-hmm. you know, you you made mention in in another podcast I think somebody was talking about the ten whales, and I I worked there when we had eleven whales, mm-hmm. and so it's probably one of my most uh, proud involvement was being a part of socializing the the eleven whales together.
0: Oh, I have heard stories. I remember being a baby, (laughs) baby trainer at Laura Park and Chuck Tompkins was singing your praises
1: of all the,
0: all the work that you had done socially. (laughs) And we were all just sitting there like, how? One
1: of the reasons why we were so successful with putting the 11 killer whales together was because we weren't in the water. A lot more time, a lot more energy. It took a lot of the trainer's time and a lot of planning and understanding the social dynamics and what was going on with the pod and, and individuals at a, at a given point. What was the experience level of the team that was in on a particular day? So it did take a lot of time and a lot of energy. So for me, I think um, it was just much easier for me to, to adapt to those changes because I had never uh, been in the water with the whales. Mm. Mm hmm. Um, So it was, you know, it was really interesting. I think I had worked with with a group of four male dolphins that I I tell people, I think you had to be even more on your feet working around uh, those young males than than you did with the killer whales. So I think, uh, you know, in my time at at uh, dolphin stadium, I, I never had a, a safety issue, so I was always keen, and still I'm very passionate about safety and ensuring that uh, not just our animals, but uh, the people that work with them every day are can be as safe as possible. Absolutely, so was, yeah. yeah, Yeah. I think
0: was, people don't really understand, you know, I think I think a lot of people think, oh, killer whales with safety is really, really important, but it's also important with dolphins and with sea lions and with altars, You know, there's there's nothing necessarily that makes killer more dangerous apart from maybe their size. You know, you have to be on your feet all the time with all the other animals, too. That's that's absolutely right.
1: Like you you need to enter this this profession and understand that we are very privileged to work with these animals and each species has you know, different, different aspects of safety, but you, you always need to keep that in mind and you always, always need to be reevaluating what you're doing. Um, yes. Sometimes, you know, we get so experienced that you start taking it for granted when you don't have any safety concerns. But, you know, when you look at any, any job you know, when people get hurt, unfortunately, it's usually the most experienced because you've gone so long and you've been reinforced for what you've been doing for many years. Mm. Uh, so it's always good to reevaluate, to 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 look at everything that you're doing and, and ensuring that that you're making safe decisions because, you know, yeah. it, it can it can change the life of a human and it can change the life of an animal.
0: Yeah, I always used to think that this is oh, showing how obsessed I was with uh, killer rails and belief before I became a trainer. But I always remembered the line either in the belief show or the DVD where it was you never forget you're working with a killer rail. Mm-hmm. And I used to tell myself that when I was either, you know, around the pool or on stage or whenever I saw myself maybe getting too close in that moment, or like getting maybe too comfortable. I think comfortable is probably the word I should use. And I would hear that line in my head, it was Laura Cerovic that said it. I would like hear her voice in my head. And I'd be like, yep, yep, I've got to take a look at, you know, my, my decision making here.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's something that we used to talk about all the time. Because I think sometimes when you when you have a lot of experience, there's there's risks that you can take but I used to tell people a risk is a risk. So, you know, you, yes, you might be very confident and you may get through something and and everything worked out, but then it's really important that you talk as a team to say, here's the reason why I made this decision. This is what I saw in the animal. This Mm -hmm. is the, this is the goal that I was trying to accomplish. And Mm -hmm. then that way people understand because you do, you, you learn vicariously through other trainers. So it's yeah. really, really important that the more experienced people take time to understand why they why they are making their decisions. So you don't mm-hmm. have somebody repeat and well, well, but you did it and everything worked out. Well, yes, I, I did but it, it, but it might not have. Yeah, exactly.
0: And I think that's something, I mean, I'm sure you guys did it a lot um, at SeaWorld San Diego as well, and we did at Marineland, was there was never really a culture of, like, shaming trainers for choices that they made, um, but it was always just, let's just have a very open discussion about what we're doing, why we're doing it and why it's, you know, the right choice or maybe we should make different choices. And I think it really did give rise to an environment where we all felt safe in our own decision making and supported by our team. But if any of us were even questioning anything, we were able to kind of raise those questions. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, there's no more
1: passionate, more confident people than those that, that work with killer Wells. And so, yes, I agree. I don't think there's never intentional shame. There's mm-hmm. definitely disagreements. There's, you know, definitely <laughs> mm-hmm. sometimes where somebody may some, say something and it's taken the wrong way. And yeah. you know, I tell people all the time, do not go home until you address. And it's an opportunity to share with your team why you may not have liked the feedback that you received
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, but
1: it's really important because you know if you're having a bad day and you go out there animals pick up on that and we Mm -hmm. owe it to them to be best attitude ready to go um, and not let your bad attitude or your bad day affect the animals so um, absolutely we're human beings. So we're always going to have a bad day, but I would tell people, you know, what? T- tell your team, like, let us know, like, you know what, I'm just not feeling it today. Okay. Let's find another activity or job for you to do where you're mm-hmm. maybe not in front of the animals. Um, so you can take care of yourself because, you know, you, we don't want you to fake it. If you're having a bad day, mm-hmm. like go do, go do this other job and help to support the team and yeah. other people will, will take care of the animals. So It's really important. It's super easy to say that. It's much more difficult, obviously, for people to engage in conflict. But uh, if you're not having conflict on your team, you're not a strong team. There's always (laughs) going to be conflict. And you have to figure out how you work it out Mm -hmm. and how you, you know, how you talk about it, because that will make you a stronger team.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I love that, you know, when you work on a team team, with animals. The animals are very much part of the team as well. I've always felt. Um, So tell us a little bit about the uh, 11 whales that you worked with there. Did you have, I mean, we all have favorites, but you know, we've spoken about social, but another thing that I adore about killer whales is their personalities. Yes. Oh, there's, there's nothing like it, right? Mm -mm. So
1: Yes. I had a, I had a favorite and I was never ashamed to, to admit it. <laughs> I mean, I loved all the whales They they're, they're just, they're so unique. They're as different as people are. Uh, but mm-hmm. I just had this, this special bond. I, I would say out of all the animals I worked with, I think my strongest connection was with the matriarch Kasaka.
0: Mm. I just,
1: I was really interested, you know, she obviously a, a, a very dominant whale dominant personality. Um, I would watch people interact with her and she had a limited team because of her history. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting. I mean, she, she very much let you know how she was doing in any particular day or what she may or may not have liked what you were doing with the pod. Mm -hmm. And it, it was, you know very interesting to watch you know is is very important for her to to control the pod and what was happening in the pod and so i would notice differences in how people interacted with her and if you stayed calm and you also offered opportunities to for instance you know she if we, she, her kids were in another pool and maybe they were playing or maybe they were being displaced by another whale you could tell by her body language, like, I need to go check that out. I need to mm-hmm. go see what's going on. And even though she was under stimulus control, meaning that she's making eye contact with you, you're, you're engaging with her, walking her over. And so that she could get, you know, better, better, um, communication mm-hmm. closer to her kids. It made a big, big difference. And I'll never forget it. There was one time we were socializing all the whales and it was, it was a situation that Kasaka would have left. Like, I have to leave. I have to go control all of this. Mm-hmm. And uh my supervisor at the time, we were holding for a really, really difficult gate with her, and she held with me. And my my boss said, I cannot believe she held for you. That is fantastic. I'm like, Isn't that the best the, feeling? Oh uh, yeah. I'm like, Great, <laughs> open the gate back up. I want to give her back the whales because that's the best way. You know, yes. people think there's such a misunderstanding that the whales interact with you for food or animals do something Mm -hmm. for food. Like they're going to get food every day. The food is not the most reinforcing thing. Yes, it is a reinforcement. But what's more reinforcing is that when you can pick up on those environmental cues that, yes, I can tell that was really difficult for you to hold. You allowed the gate to shut, open the gate back up. You're getting all the whales back. That's Mm -hmm. what's going to be more reinforcing because she understand that it's not predictable every time I separate it doesn't mean that I'm not going to get that opportunity back or every time I separate it doesn't mean that I'm going to get food I'm going to get food it you know that doesn't really matter or providing in you know some enrichment opportunity for them or putting them in a different social structure that she finds even more reinforcing Mm -hmm. Um, you know she there are different times where Kasaka really wanted to be with Keith sometimes she wanted to be with Ulysses and sometimes she wanted to be with her family. Sometimes we would be doing, um, we would be moving her and her family in and she would go with the family and she would even get to a point where she was like holding the gate open. And as soon as the
0: kids went through, she'd let the gate shut, like, okay, I need need a break. Um, Yes. Yes. yes, You know, it's, I love patriarchs like that. Wiki did that. I remember one day, we were training the the rising floor with her in uh pool four and usually she didn't really she wasn't super comfortable being in pool four it was pretty far away it's like it's an awkward pool to get to and her being the matriarch she likes to oversee everything so it wasn't her favorite (laughs) and one day she just kept failing on letting us close the gate in the false bottom and we were just like, okay, okay, we'll just give her like a quick timeout, and she just kept failing. But she, her attitude was totally fine. She was yeah. whistling, she was asking for rubdowns, <laughs> she wanted attention, and we were just like, she just wants to chill in here. Like yeah. she, she just wants to be left in here alone and not yeah. have to deal with her kids <laughs> or her brother who are being super sexual together for like five days. She's done yeah. with them. She just uh-huh. wants some time and <laughs> just a break. Just it like was people. hilarious. Yeah, they're so yeah. aren't they just so good at telling you what they want
1: yes absolutely and I think that's why I I respected her and really enjoyed working with mm-hmm. her she just I don't think I worked with any animal that you really felt the respect back um, yeah. it, it's like you know she knew and I, I'll tell you I have a a really sad <laughs> sad story but ironically it's one of my favorite stories you know towards the end of her life um, she we we got to the point where we made made the decision to humanely euthanize her she had Mm -hmm. an infection we had tried you know multiple treatments and medication and nothing was working and her body was shutting down and Mm -hmm. so we we had to do what was right and her last day um she went into our into our medical pool and uh we were of course getting everything together and you know she was communicating with her family and between the gates and no. she at that point it had been 2 days that she wasn't eating she wasn't looking at anybody she she just she, there was there was zero interest in us mm-hmm. as trainers and i think that that was you know her also letting us know like okay time time to go Mm -hmm. And so for two days, no interaction, no looking, no nothing. And uh, I did not leave her side. I Mm -hmm. stayed right there at the pool. And, uh, you know, she no looking not not coming over. And then all of a sudden, she comes over, she's kind of swimming by very slowly. And she kind of tilts her head up and looks at me and stops and puts her pectoral flipper up and just I lose it. I'm just bawling and mm. saying goodbye to her and rubbing her peck. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my, my good friends and uh, highly respect uh, one of the trainers I worked with, Missy, she was walking by mm. and she just, she just fell to the ground. I was like, I cannot believe we, we called Kasaka mom. Cause she was such Aww. a, mm-hmm. mom. she's like, I can't believe mom came over to you. And man, I, I don't think I felt more honored uh, yeah. and, and privileged to to have mm-hmm. that happen to me and i i was so happy missy walked by because i don't think anyone would have believed, believed oh. i told told this story yeah but wow what what an honor for her to you know what what i perceived as you know her saying saying goodbye so um mm-hmm. yeah she's she's I'll, I'll never forget her
0: that's yeah i mean they never they never leave you and you know that must have been such such an unbelievably difficult decision um to have to make on so many levels um yeah. you know i think killer rail trainers especially are very we always anticipate what's going to be said about any decision that we make or anything that happens with any of our animals and a lot of people don't really have a very good understanding of kind yeah. of what what goes on around the pool you know you did just say you know she had an infection. She'd been going through treatment. You know, we're kind of damned if we do and damned if we don't, right? Like they they right. want us to give our animals medicine, but then they don't want us to give animals medicine. But what are we supposed to do? Um, right. what are your feelings about that? Well, here's the thing, and and
1: I was super proud of our organization because we really shared uh, with the public, which I don't know that that really had ever been done. I mean, we we definitely shared like once we got an animal through an illness and, you know, we, we love to share those stories because just mm-hmm. like, just like people, animals go through, you know, they go through, through issues as they age and, mm-hmm. you know, there's one thing that's certain, you know, they, our animals will at some point die and yep. because they're in human care, they definitely have, um, they have the opportunity that animals in the wild don't, and that's that we have incredible veterinarians and veterinary technicians and specialists. We have human specialists that come in and work with our teens to mm-hmm. to help with with some of these issues. And so, what I really loved is throughout Kasaka's illness, we shared it. We shared it on social media. We did updates. We showed some of her treatments that we are doing. So I thought that was really important for, for people to see that part of the care of the animals. You know, it's not the fun part, but it's reality. Mm-hmm. And it's what we do for the animals and to really understand the lengths that we go to. Yes. But also to accept that at some point, you know, it, it's, it's like your own animals. You know, are you keeping them alive for you? Yeah. Or... You know at what point do you say listen you know we we want them to go in a very humane way a very kind way of course you know once you get to a point where the experts are telling you there's really nothing else we can do and you see Mm -hmm. those changes in your animal in fact I'll tell you there was one time it was it was the the start of um, this this last illness that she had Um, she was just a little off and I can't tell you. It wasn't body language. It was more like something in her eyes. I I just I had reported to one of our veterinarians and said I don't I don't know what it is with her, but she's eating. She looks fine. There's just something that's off. And they took mm-hmm. a blood sample. They're like, nope, everything's fine. And then two days later, that's when we really saw, saw this this uh, this infection. Mm-hmm. So I you know I I always tease the veterinarians to say you know uh, science will not always tell you everything. But uh, usually behavior tells you everything.
0: Oh, 100%.
1: Yeah. You work so long with these animals that the slightest changes, you know, you you pick up on, which, you know, it just really is a, it's really a um, reinforcement of how important those close relationships are. And so Mm. I will tell you, you know, one of the things that you know, people have different opinions about going in the water with the animals. And, well, I saw it as, you know what? Okay, so we're not in the water with them anymore. And there's other aspects to the safety and animals understanding if somebody falls in the water, how they respond. And we're able to continue mm-hmm. with that with that training and that decence work. But it also opened up time and opportunities to teach animals different things. And mm-hmm. so I you know, part of me is I understand the decision and you know you have to make a decision that a hundred percent will keep people safe.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: while I understood that, I also I mean, I think there's that, no way yes. to be
0: hundred percent safe as as long as you're working with animals because any animal, you know, horses, yeah, dogs, well, anything.
1: Absolutely. But if you're in the water. You know, yeah. you have to be able to how do you get a person out of the water? And I think that's mm-hmm. that's the thing that people struggled with. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you they made decisions that, uh, you know, they thought that th- this was going to be more safe. And I will tell you, you know, we haven't had any incidences since being out of the water with killer whales. Very and, true. Very true. But I would tell you, the other side of that is when you're in the water with an animal, I feel like you pick up on other things. You know, there's there's just different aspects of being in the water, being in their environment and experiencing what it's like to be in and around a killer whale in the water is just it's it's life changing. But mm-hmm. I will say that, you know, a trainer's day is, I would say, you know, 90 percent of it is not in the water. Um, mm-hmm. there's just so much more that, that's, yeah, that you're working with. That's, that's super important. But listen, if you told me tomorrow, everything's changed and who wants to go in the water, I'd be the first one to,
0: to, to go in and,
1: oh, and I would building be building up the relationship.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. I would be like, my suit is going back on. I'm leaving. (laughs) I'm leaving my fiance here in the Netherlands. Get me back to the south of France immediately. Yes. Um, Yes. But you're so right in saying that, you know, the observation of behavior is such a necessary skill for trainers and we use it constantly you know yeah. yes in the early identification you know of an illness most often for us anyway it was the trainers notifying a vet you know we've noticed this we've seen this happen can you come and check it out you know either get the ultrasound on or get a, a quick blood sample but also for social you know yes. it, reading your animal's body language is so important and you know talk us through a little bit how you dealt with some of the social issues that were happening in the pod and how you got them like I just remember Chuck talking about mm-hmm. like he was like and all the living killer whales are all swimming together through all of the pools mm. and you just painted this lovely harmonious picture so tell me your secrets please Yeah, <laughs> well,
1: I, I wouldn't say it was harmonious I mean they definitely were were all together um, it was great for Kasaka and her family because then she had full control all of all, you know, of all the whales. I think it was a little more uncomfortable for this, you know, the, the, sub the submissive males. Mm. Um, but then we also started to recognize, Hey, like we need to get the males together and they need to have a strong relationship. So there was different mm. parts of the socialization. It wasn't just the 11 killer whales. It was also, you know, how do we, uh, How do we engage the males for Makani, who was young and, you know, his mom is the matriarch. So as far as his behavior went, as long as he's with his mom, he can do whatever he wants. And it was Mm -hmm. really important for us to really start to socialize him with the older adults so that he could learn manners and what it's like to to live with another male. Because that would be be his that's going to be his
0: life. Yeah, like little males who Mm -hmm. are sons of the matriarch are brats. (laughs) Well, you know,
1: I I don't think they're brats, Hazel. I think they're just being, they're being male killer whales. That's that's (laughs) what they do. And when they have, when they have the the matriarch to back them up. Yeah. You know, there's no one to teach them, Mm -hmm. you know, the the social compatibility. So it's, you know, it. And again, it comes back to the trainers to say, yes, it's very important for him to be with his mother, but Mm -hmm. it's also important for him to be with the males because that's going to be his life. And at that time, we weren't really thinking that, you know, oh, well, Kasaka is not going to be around. Uh, But just how critical that ended up being that, you know, now he's he's not with his mom. And so, you know, Kalia obviously took over and, and really, I think, kind of became that, that mother figure for him, their, their Mm. sister brother, but, you know, with uh, the no breeding and everything, and, you know, the females were on birth control, but, you know, at times it was, he really needs to be with these, these older males. And so he needs Mm -hmm. to learn how to get along and, and, you know, they they very quickly at a young age, you know, they want to chase and rake. It's just what they do. It's it's part of their social structure. And it's important. Yeah, it's important very. for them to establish themselves. Uh, but he needs to learn that you do those things for a purpose, not just because it's intrinsically reinforcing to you. Um, mm-hmm. So that, you know, there were so many different elements. So, number one, I would tell you, you know, for it the was all about the sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please continue. It was all about the communication with the people. You know, you asked me before, what was the most challenging? And and it was really about the communication of how we're gonna put the animals together. What pools will they have access to? What are we reinforcing? Um, So there were many bumps that we went through Mm. uh, with the whales, but, you know, for, you know, and I think a lot of people Know this, with dominant and submissive animals, you usually always bring the dominant into the submissive animal. Um, mm-hmm. And we actually we actually saw a difference with killer whales, and that was, you know, you want to have like neutral territory when you bring an animal. So if you're going to introduce a dog to your dogs, like go to a park or go out somewhere, don't bring that new animal in into you know your animal's territory. And while that traditionally is true for animals, we actually saw a difference. And so we actually started having the dominant animals, Kasaka and her family, hold and then bring the submissives in, reinforcing them together. We would step away from the pool. A big key was, was distraction, offering up environmental enrichment, offering up water sprayers and kelp. And other types of of opportunities for them to engage, so that they didn't leave their leave their trainers and, okay, I'm gonna go and and chase and rape because that's really reinforcing. It was, okay, how can we engage them in other activities other than that? And mm. so it really was a step by step process. Again, it was really looking at the social dynamics of of the whales to say, what, you know, how do the whales look? You know, everybody looks really good. Um, also engaging Makani, you know, giving him attention loosely, you know, that's the other thing people always think, oh, animals have to be under strict stimulus control. And for this, we did not uh, do that. We actually offered up opportunities. So when he was engaging in correct behavior and he was swimming with other whales, uh, we would, you know, obviously we want them to, to be together and, have that be reinforcing in itself, but we did step in occasionally and and reinforce him when he was you know engaging in good behavior as opposed mm-hmm. to chasing the other males since he had mom as as a backup mm-hmm. so we we also tracked everything uh we tracked who we were putting together, how long they were with, um how often we saw types of aggression, what type of aggression did we see? did we see contact aggression? did we see just animals kind of swimming by one another? Do we see animals like, this is my pool, you can't come in. So we were really tracking everything and seeing trends every month so that we saw, you know what, this this group of animals isn't as strong. Let's really work on this. Let's use the trainers relationship and reinforcement to help really uh, establish a stronger connection between the whales. So it was really, uh, really interesting to do. Um, and I would say the key was all about communication and then reading behavior. Very small steps. Sometimes, you know, the whales would be together. The the ultimate goal was, could we actually leave and have the animals be together overnight for a long period of time? And Mm. when I was there, we never got to that point. I think most of us just wanted to make sure that we were, you know, we were there and we were ensuring safety for other whales. Mm-hmm. So I I think we just abandoned that goal because I I didn't think that it was as critical, mm-hmm. um and of course we wanted to be there to make sure you know everything was safe and and everyone was doing well so yeah
0: yeah I love definitely the a highlight yeah I love all of the insight that you you gave there especially for people who have never worked with killer wheels before and might not have you know a great frame of reference of the amount of work and time and everything that would go into something seemingly simple as just have all the whales together because I think for a lot of people that sounds almost like a no-brainer um and you did talk a little bit about aggression and I love how easily you spoke of it because it is a very natural part of animals lives you know whether it's you know just vocalizing whether like you said animals are making contact on each other Um, what is the view that you take with regards to the media twisting anything that can be perceived as aggression sometimes they twist things that aren't even aggression um to make it sound like it's unnatural and not normal and it never happens in the wild
1: well I always I always found it interesting when people you know they make comments about the whales or dolphins having rake marks and as you know that that is an incredibly important way that they communicate with one another Mm -hmm. And, uh, for anybody listening to the podcast that thinks that animals in human care are the only animals that, that engage in aggression or receive rake marks, take a look at killer whales in the wild. You will see rake marks. You will see scars again. It's how they communicate with one another. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's a natural part and it's, it's really our duty to ensure that people understand why that they, why they engage in those behaviors. Um, It is important. Their social hierarchy is incredibly important for uh, the whales within that structure. So the difference, though, is that although they may engage in aggression with one another, we have zero tolerance for any sort of aggression on trainers. And so I I think that that also is difficult. Sometimes you, you maybe you see you know, a whale chasing another whale, and you want to step in, and it's really important that you take a step back and you let them continue, and then find resolution, mm-hmm. because the minute that you step in, you could be, you could be inadvertently reinforcing something. Yeah. And so I would say that was a major change uh, with the killer whales. Is you know, when when you're engaging in in a show or a session. Um, you know, you would try to just go on and, and continue working with the animals that was working with you. And We got to a point where we said, you know what, let's just stop the show and let's explain to people what's happening because it's really, really important what's happening right now. You know, maybe it's an older male that's trying to to to, you know, displace or take advantage of, of a younger male. And Kasaka would leave and, you know, she's going to go and protect her her kid. And so when we'd stop and we explained to, to the audience what was happening, and sometimes we'd just cancel the show completely because what we're doing with them is not, a, is not the important, uh, mm-hmm. it's not the priority. What's, yeah. The priority is the, the communication within the pod. And so mm-hmm. I found that people were so responsive and really appreciated that we stopped and we also said, you know what, you need to communicate with one another. You know, we would we tell the audience, you know, we'll we will ask the whales to see if they want to participate. And if they don't, um, we're going to go ahead and call it here and let them continue to to socialize. So Mm -hmm. I I really saw a change. And I I think it was, you know, the hard part is the people who are coming to Sea Road are the people who support you. Right. It's a little more difficult Mm -hmm. to, you know, especially if people were videotaping that and then they take it out of context. And always. people will will use it to their advantage to tell their story mm-hmm. um but you know it's it's a normal part of their behavior and their their communication
0: yeah and i think a lot of people who don't have a good understanding of you know the animals they do ask the question of okay well why doesn't the animal that's getting aggressed on just leave or they seem to think that wild animals that's what they do but i think people like that fail to understand the power of the matriarch you know, yeah. I've seen Kohana at Laurel Park be aggressing on Kito and he will not leave her side, even though he right. knows or Inuk with Wiki, like they know they're about yes. to <laughs> get beat, you know, but yeah, they're yeah. just going to stay. They're like, OK, well, you know, I guess I deserve it. They're like, I, it'll well, be it'll be worse if I leave. So I'm just going to yes. accept this.
1: That's right. And well, it's interesting because you, you sometimes would see animals that, I mean, you could tell, yeah, she's clearly communicating. You're going to be by my side and, mm-hmm. and you know, you need to not engage in that behavior and you need to stay right here. And then sometimes you would see whales that, you know, they would leave and like, oh no, don't leave.
0: Yeah. It's like <laughs> that's, that's
1: the wrong choice. <laughs> it's going to be worse. And then you see, yeah. okay, now they're swimming with her and mm-hmm. Okay they've, they've worked it out and there's understanding now. So yeah, I, I I think that that's such a fascinating part of working with killer whales is to, to see the social dynamics and to, to try and understand the whys behind what they're doing. And then again, just being very careful that you are not, our relationships and our reinforcement with animals is so strong. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really important that you take a step back. And just observe and, you know, talk about it with your team. Why did this happen? What happened here? You know, there's cameras and underwater cameras. So sometimes you can go back to say, oh, I see what happened. That male came Mm -hmm. over and and took a little, like, bumped Kisaka's tail. And she basically was saying, no. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that was super uh, interesting about Kisaka is... um, probably, I think it was two weeks before she gave birth to Makani. She went through and raked every whale, including (laughs) Orchid, who never got raked. She got the time, maybe an inch, a tiny little rake, but she still let Orchid know. And I think that was a way for all of them to know is I might be 18 months pregnant and about to Mm. give birth. But I'm still in charge. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and I had been told that she'd done that in the past as well. So, uh, I thought, wow, that that is so interesting that she's letting everybody know. Yeah. I'm about to give birth, but I'm still in charge. So, uh, this is know, why I'm obsessed
0: with killer whales. They are just... <laughs> They like you said, they they almost become human in your eyes. Mm. Like whenever I Mm -hmm. talk about any of the whales that I've had the absolute privilege to get to know. I I see them as like they're 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 just so humanistic to me. And I know they're not human and I know I'm massively anthropomorphizing, (laughs) but, you know, they're they're just so incredible and so complex and so challenging that they are just for me, you know, they're just the, the best animal I have ever worked with. And, you know, I don't think that they're ever going to leave me. I feel like they have haunted me for the last 18 months since I've left. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, I can't get them out of my head.
1: <laughs> well, they te- they teach you so much. They teach you so mm-hmm. much about, you know, social dynamics. And, you know, not that I'm out, you know, breaking my husband when he doesn't listen but you know (laughs) maybe it would help (laughs) (laughs) maybe Uh, but uh yeah they're just they're they're so fascinating and then Mm -hmm. of course you know when you get the opportunity to go out and see them in the wild uh they're just they're it it just again it's life-changing but you know I've seen other animals in the wild and I just I'm fascinated with with everything Mm -hmm. I mean I see a baby bunny in my yard and I'm like, Oh, look at that. Button. You know, I just, <laughs> I, I, I truly love all animals, but I think that connection and more importantly, feeling that, that
0: respect
1: back mm-hmm. from the killer whale, mm-hmm. I think that's what really, really sets them
0: apart. Yeah. Oh my goodness, Christy. It has been wonderful to sit down and chat (laughs) to you. I feel like we could go on for like three more hours. It's been Uh, fantastic. Um, If you were to give any advice to anyone currently in the field or just starting out, what would your advice be? I would say
1: preparation. And I don't mean that lightly in that everybody has to follow the same track and everybody has to go to school. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I will tell you, I, I, absolutely support education. You know, in your life anything can be taken from you, but no one can take away your your education and your knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you have opportunities to go back to school, no matter what the subject is, you're just expanding your overall knowledge and you'd be surprised. You know, sometimes I hear people say, "Well, why do why do I need to take that subject?" And then as you get older, you realize, "Oh, that's that's very important for what I'm doing now." So I think mm-hmm. it's preparation. And again, it doesn't need to be academic. It can be volunteering. It can be um, just preparing yourself to work with animals. If you are an impatient person, you have to figure out how to become more patient. Uh, because mm-hmm. I think that, that that is a critical skill that you need to have working with people who work with animals and then also working, working with animals. Find out about the animal that you want to work with and let me stop there and just say don't get so focused like if you are somebody who says oh i want to work with killer whales," that's great that's absolutely that that should be a goal of yours but don't let that limit you open up your horizons travel go work at other facilities you know sometimes people think that you know oh this i only want to work at this facility. Every facility has something to offer you and to teach mm-hmm. you. And so don't jump around multiple places, but just be open. You may not think, oh, there's this opportunity to go work with reptiles. Well, I don't want to work with reptiles. Well, working with reptiles, that gives you an expertise and a skill set that you'll mm-hmm. never get if you just go straight into to marine mammals. So be open. Um, sometimes you don't think you want to work with a particular animal, and then you know if you're already in the job and you get transferred and you start working with that animal, I see it a hundred percent that somebody who says I don't see myself working with that animal and then move ahead a year later and they say Oh, this has been life changing. I never knew I wanted to work right? with this animal. What mm-hmm. an amazing opportunity that this has been. So really, just keep your options open, but mm-hmm. also when you're working with animals make sure that you're not just learning from the people that that you work side by side with really expand your understanding your knowledge what's going on with con- conservation with that animal what's the natural history of that animal uh, really try to understand all the different aspects that there is to to caring for an animal it will just make you mm-hmm. make you a much more rounded um, employee For those of you that want to get into working with marine mammals, you know, there's, (laughs) I've heard on your other, on your other podcasts when people talk about swim tests. And Mm. and I think that that, you know, the, the scariness of the swim test is going away, but you have to prepare, you know, you're getting in cold water. You don't have to be the best swimmer. You know, we've had collegiate swimmers come and not pass a swim test, not because they're not a good swimmer because they didn't prepare. You yeah, know, swimming in salt water, swimming in cold water is it's just different.
0: And uh, without goggles.
1: So yeah, without yeah, and you don't want goggles. You know, it's so much better to to open up your eyes and and, and see and in salt water and it's actually healthier for you to be in salt water.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: you know, just just prepare. And if you prepare, you'll do fine. And also realize that when you think you don't have any more air left, you can hold your breath for a lot, lot longer. Yeah. Um, So it's just you have to have that mindset, and you have to show up and say, "I'm going to pass," and you will, you will. But you got to prepare. You know, mm-hmm. you can't just think, "Why swim in college? So I'll go pass that swim test." No, actually, mm-hmm. go go out into the ocean. You know, go swim in some cold water, and make sure that you're prepared, and it's not not such a shock for you.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Christy, thank you so much for all of the stories and advice that you have shared. I know that my listeners are going to absolutely love it. And thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure,
1: Hazel. It's, it's been an honor to know you for many years. And I thank you for, for all that you've
0: done for, for animals and for people. Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please do not forget to like, rate, and subscribe. Sharing on social media is always a bonus, and I will catch you guys next week.